following pre-recorded program is a special presentation of WFDU-FM. I've been having some hard traveling, I thought you know. I've been having some hard traveling. Good evening. I'm Ron Alesco. The voice you hear singing belongs to Woody Guthrie, and the song is also his. Woody sparked the folk revival of the 60s, influencing the careers of Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Richie Havens, and his son Arlo, of Alice's Restaurant fame, to name just a few. Ten years ago, Woody died of Huntington's disease, a genetic neurological disease that robbed Woody of the last 15 years of his life. Woody's second wife, Marjorie Guthrie, is the founder and president of the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease and is also keeping the spirit of Woody alive by working with the Woody Guthrie Foundation. Mrs. Guthrie has graciously taken time out to come here today to talk to me about Woody Guthrie and the work she's been doing with the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease. Welcome to our studios, Mrs. Guthrie. My pleasure to be here and share some thinking with you, Ron. Well, to uh, start off uh, Huntington's Disease, uh, until you started working in the struggle against Huntington's disease, there, there really wasn't much known about it. Uh, exactly what is the disease? Well, let's, let's go back a little bit before we talk about the disease, just for a minute to identify. You know that many people sing, this land is your land, and so long it's been good to know you, and now the film Bound for Glory is out. And everybody talks about and knows a little bit about that part of Woody's life. Yeah. What they don't know is that in the mid-years, when he was 40, he was taken to a hospital because he showed some imbalance in his walking. His speech was somewhat slurred, and he was at times more irritable or depressed than one should have been under normal circumstances. And so he gladly went to the hospital and said, hey, you know, there's something wrong with me. What could it be? And the original diagnosis we got was that Woody was an alcoholic. Mm. And so he, being a very bright man, decided, well, if it's alcoholism, I can conquer that. And he got out a few books on alcoholism, and the men from Alcoholics Anonymous came to our home to visit. And a few days later, he had another outbreak. Went back to the hospital again and said, hey, I hadn't even been drinking. And look what happened. Well, we went in and out of hospitals for a, a long time, a couple of years, until we got the diagnosis of Huntington's chorea, which we're now calling Huntington's disease. Woody's mother had this disorder, and in those days, it was believed that only women had it, right. and he that therefore Woody couldn't have it. You wrote about that in the uh, book, Bound for Glory. And, uh, That's right. Originally they thought it was insanity or something like that. Well, you know, when Woody wrote that book in 1943, I was a dancer in those days, yeah. and I would come home from rehearsals all day, and he would read to me at night what he had written by hand, and then I would type it for him, or we'd reverse the, the process, and sometimes he'd type and I'd mm -hmm. read to him. He liked to write in longhand. And he came to this part where he described his mother. And if you stop and think about it, Ron, you say you read the book, and if you think carefully, there's a description of what the mother looked like and how she acted. And when he said that the mother threw things across the room and messed up all the furniture, what he described was really a child's view of Huntington's chorea or Huntington's disease because in Huntington's a patient has involuntary movements, a lot of them. 
So maybe she was trying to drink her cup of coffee, and she didn't throw the cup, but the involuntary movement forced the cup across the floor. Or she bumped into the furniture trying to walk straight, and her imbalance didn't let her walk straight. So what you read was a child's description, but we know now that those were the early signs of this disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, did, when did they real, realize that his mother had the disease? Was it until he got it? or No, it's interesting. You see, when he wrote that part about his, about his mother mm-hmm. in the book, and here I am typing it away, I said to him one day, Woody, could you be sick like your mother? And he said, oh, no, she has Huntington's. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, c- could you get Huntington's? He said, no. Only females inherit it, so I don't have to worry. And that's why it completely went out of our mind for years. Mm -hmm. And that's why even going in and out of the hospital the first few years, we knew there was something wrong, but nobody believed it was Huntington's because only females were supposed to have it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not uncommon for this message uh, not to be understood even by science writers. Not too long ago in the Ladies' Home Journal, a science writer wrote that only men have Huntington's. Mm -hmm. So it's taken a while to educate the public. So there's still a lot of research going on now. There's a great deal of research. Uh, I understand the the government is doing something now. Well, let me again tell you why the government's involved. I think that's what's interesting in our story. When Woody became ill, and he spent 15 years actually in and out of the hospital, I had three little children. They were two, three, and four. They had to grow up. I had to go out and earn a living. And I was told that the case was hopeless and helpless even after we got the diagnosis. Assuming that was so, frankly, I never thought that I could do anything about it. I just said, well, I've got to live with hopeless and helpless. And if my children have the disease, I'm going to have to live with that too. But after a long period, you know, you go in and out of that hospital and visit and see all the patients with their problems and seeing Woody, I woke up one day and said to myself, why is it hopeless and helpless? mean to tell me I really can't do anything about it? And with that kind of spirit, and my kids now being old enough to be able to take care of themselves, (laughs) I went to the director of the hospital, and I said, I want to do something, and I want to help, and I can't believe there's nothing to be done. And I was very fortunate in having what I call a good teacher, uh, Dr. Whittier, who was in charge of Creedmoor Institute, where Woody was at that time, gave me some things to read. And I laughed, and I came back, and I said, Dr. Whittier, I can't understand that. That's for scientists. I'm talking about people like me, dancers. You know, (laughs) I don't want to know about science. I want to know what can I do. And then he introduced me to some other scientists, and they said, you might be able to help if you could just find families. We believe that this disorder is all over the world. It is hidden Families don't even know they have it, and those that do are so ashamed. There's a stigma attached to somebody who looks funny walking down the street, and you think he's drunk, and he really isn't drunk, but nobody tells anybody what's really wrong. With that kind of help, I began to look for families with this disease and then founded the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease. Now that we found all these families, and we knew that the disorder was much more prevalent than anybody believed possible, I began to knock on the doors of congressmen and say to the congressman, you know, Huntington's is one of many other neurological disorders, but you never hear anything about it, and no one's doing too much about it. Can you help? And I didn't know what I was asking for, frankly. All I asked for was for help. 
I found out that there were families who were destitute trying to take care of their loved ones. You know, paying for 15 years of hospitalization or nursing home care for one or two members of your family for two or three generations, uh, you're pretty poor at the end of your line. And so I, fortunately, we're in New Jersey, and I want to comment that one of the doors I knocked on turned out to be Congressman Rowe of New Jersey. He was very responsive. I came to his office, and he said to me, never underestimate the value of one good letter to one good congressman. And he showed me a letter from a family who belonged to the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease. And he said, I want to help you. And so he wrote a bill. And this bill was to try to promote research and education and better care for patients. And I even helped in the writing of the bill a little bit and put my two cents in. But then we discovered that there were more senators and more congressmen, as I began to knock on more and more doors, who said, well, how many people have Huntington's in our city or our state? And so what I did is ask all the people, let's say of Iowa, to write to Senator Clark. Well, when Senator Clark saw how many families had Huntington's, he became very interested, besides the fact he told me that he loved Woody's music. <laughs> uh, we went to all the families in Indiana and said, if you will write to Senator Birch Bayh, he says he's interested. He wants to know how many of his constituents might be helped if he became interested. And many, many families from Indiana wrote to Birch Bayh. And this is the way we did this. And finally, Senator Kennedy in Massachusetts jumped on, and uh, Congressman Rogers of Florida. The result was, with all of the people writing to their representatives, they felt a need to want to help. And thanks to that first bill that Mr. Rowe put into the hopper, we grew into a congressional commission, which is now called the Commission for the Control of Huntington's Disease and Its Consequences. And this is a fact-finding commission going out all over this country investigating not only families, but what are scientists doing, what are the nursing homes doing, what kind of care are you offering, and tell us what you can't do that you want to do. Mm. And when we get all our facts, we're going to make recommendations to the Congress. I'm very proud to say that I was appointed the chairperson of this federal um, commission. And we're meeting and talking and learning. Are you funded entirely by uh, contributions? Only by contributions. <laughs> And it's a small budget. We have only four clerical workers in our office and one executive director. I'm a volunteer. I pay all my expenses. I have worked now since 1967. This is going to be my 10th year, and I'm proud to do it. I think that the name of Woody Guthrie has made it possible for me to get into many doors, and I feel that thanks to Woody, I can do the job that I do but thanks to the good scientists and doctors who educated me, I can now talk to the public and tell them what they can do and how they can help and why it's important. Has uh, care of patients improved since uh, Woody had it? No, I think that's the greatest tragedy. That is truly, in our testimony recently, 95% of the people who came and testified about their trials and, and tribulations living with Huntington's talked about the great sadness of the misdiagnosis living in a mental institution when you don't belong there. You know, Woody spent all those years in a state hospital because it was presumed that he was going to be a vegetable at the end of his life. 
And the sad part really is that he never did become a vegetable. I always, I've been reading some articles about it, and they, people say that he was. What was it like in the final days? No, he wasn't. The, he looked like a vegetable. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. His involuntary movement was hard to control. But when I came to visit, I tested him regularly. I saw that as the years were going by that he enjoyed my visits. He knew who I was. He enjoyed my reading his mail to him. I could see by the laughter or the look on his face that he enjoyed what I was saying or doing. And finally, right near the end in 1967, those last couple of months, I began to call Dr. Whittier over to the bedside and I would say, Dr. Whittier, Woody is not a vegetable. He knows everything I'm saying. And I made three cards, a yes, a no, and a question mark. And I spread them out on the bed. And I went to Woody and I said, Woody, let's show Dr. Whittier that you know everything I'm talking about. And I asked him questions to which I knew the answer. And he would make a face at me as if to say, you know I was born in Okeem. And I said, yes, I know, I know, but I want Dr. Whittier to see that you know and that your memory is still functioning. Now, there is some deterioration, but Ron, did you know that every single person from the day you are born are losing brain cells? Mm. They are the only cells in your self that do not regenerate, so that we're all losing brain cells. And in Huntington's disease, we lose maybe too many, a little too fast, perhaps in the middle years of your life. And that's also part of the tragedy, that by that time you may have married and you may have had children, and you're very worried that you may have passed on this terrible disease to your children. But the fact is, people must be judged for what they are today and not on what they might be tomorrow. And Woody kept, through my testing, showing me that although his memory wasn't as perfect, he was still a whole person, but he looked awful. And imagine what it was like having a brain, functioning, and living with 44 men who were mentally incompetent. <laughs> I want to say to your audience, just stop and think about it. You have been hearing about multiple sclerosis and muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy and epilepsy, Easter seal. These are very important agencies, and they do wonderful work, and you've heard all about them. We're a tiny agency. We don't have the opportunity to educate that they have. And I have been very outspoken and have said to all of those people involved in those agencies, we're interested in what you do because you think that you're collecting money maybe for muscular dystrophy, but you may be actually supporting a man who's going to solve Huntington's. Therefore, you should be interested also in Huntington's because it could be somebody who thinks he's doing research in Huntington's that may solve muscular dystrophy or cerebral palsy. Since it's a genetic disease, um, it means your children have a 50-50 chance of getting it. How did the family handle it? Like, I know Arlo has um, three children. That's right. Uh, how, do you, how do you make decisions? Well, the, uh, the important thing, again, is I believe in education. I would not tell my son or anybody's son what to do. I think it's our responsibility to tell people what we know. I have three children. I don't think we mentioned the fact that each child in this particular disorder has what we call a 50-50 chance either of developing it or not developing it. Some people call it the glass is half empty, the other one is half full. 
I found that in Arlo's case, he knew all the facts, his wife knew all the facts. They chose to have children. I have two other children who were just married. I do not know what they will choose to do. The important thing is whatever you choose to do, if you do it with knowledge, then you are strengthened to live with your decision. I know Arlo was asked recently, how do you live with this knowing that you might have it? And his answer was, well, I've lived with it all my life. I don't know any other way. Hmm. Now, there are some people who feel they cannot tell their children. They're so scared that the child may not have a, a, a positive reaction. These people need counseling. They may be right. You must depends on the child, depends on the parent, how it's told. When they come to the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, we try to refer them to what we call good professional advice. Now, aside from uh, the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, you're also working with a, the Woody Guthrie Foundation. Now, is that related to the committee? Well, I must tell you how that came about. You know, when I started long ago with a committee, there were a group of very beautiful young people who were writing letters to Woody. Now, they were not interested in Huntington's. And my first job, I think I mentioned, was to go out and find Huntington families. I didn't know what I was going to do with them after I found them. That was something else. But the responsibility from the scientific point of view was to find the families. So when I had all these wonderful letters from young people from all over the world, which I was reading to Woody, it occurred to me that they're a beautiful group of people who are really perpetuating Woody. They're the people who are really keeping Woody's work alive. Maybe they'd like to do something to help me. On that basis, I started the Woody Guthrie Foundation. And the Woody Guthrie Foundation has three purposes. One, of course, is to help me with my work in Huntington's. And it was from the Woody Guthrie Foundation that I was able to support the Centennial Symposium of a World Federation of Neurology Commission on Huntington's back in 1972. So that some of the money was able to help me there and is still helping me in various ways. But there are two other purposes. One, of course, is to try to do the kind of things that Woody would have done if he were alive, helping young people. And so we have what we call a scholarship or project fund in which we're trying to give people seed money to do the kind of things that Woody would have done if he were around. We just gave a grant, for instance, to a young woman who's been following the migratory workers around. You know, they're still there. And she's preparing a beautiful photographic essay on child labor and what it's like out in the fields today. Well, I know Woody would have liked to see this work be done, and we're supporting that, and other projects besides. We just supported a, a little film called Union Made. You know, Woody wrote a great right. song called Union Made, and we want very much for people to know that these are the kind of things Woody would have done himself if he had been around. So in a sense, we're perpetuating what he would have done. Mm -hmm. And the third goal of the Woody Guthrie Foundation is to get all the material that he left us, all the things I call the archives, into some kind of condition so that young people who want to study Woody and what he stood for, which is most important, can come to the archives, can read what he wrote, and they go out and write their own things. And we're getting letters again almost every week. I'm so pleased. This week alone, I had a letter from a 10th grade student and from a kid in um, 7th grade. And both, are, um, both of them are going to write a paper on Woody, and I send them our material. And I'm, in a sense, I'm sharing Woody's ideals. What first interested you in Woody Guthrie? You know, I was on tour with Martha Graham dancing. And I didn't know anything about him. But my sister said, I've got to play a record for you. 
and she played Woody's first recording of Tom Joad, which was based on the story of the Grapes of Wrath, the families that traveled with the dust storms and went out to California. And I heard his voice, and I was so moved by his voice. And then came the last verse, and it said, Wherever children are hungry and tired, wherever people ain't free, wherever folks are fighting for their rights, that's where I want to be, Ma. That's where I want to be. And when I heard those words, I was just, do you mind if I use an old-fashioned word? Go ahead. Flabbergasted. I couldn't believe that in those few words, and with his voice and the quality of his voice, somebody was saying something that I thought really was me. I wanted to do something. I wanted to identify with people who needed me. I wanted to feel needed. And then several months later, Woody was in New York. And I knew that he was in New York. A friend of mine was going to see him. I went to see him. Anyone who could write those words and sing the way he did was for me. And I took one look at him, and I knew that he was going to be my husband. And he told me several weeks later he felt the same way about me. I came in with another lady. He said he didn't see her. He only saw me. I was reading that the uh, first gift he ever gave you was a Lead Belly record. Oh, he wrote the most beautiful inscription. He says he went out to buy me a present, and he didn't want to buy me jewels. He didn't want to buy me perfume. And he goes through this long thing, and he said, what was sparkling like jewels and what smelled better than perfume, and he goes on and on, was Lead Belly. <laughs> and so he bought me as my first gift Lead Belly's album. Woody's songs told of the problems and hopes of an era. Let's listen now to Woody performing his Talking Dust Bowl Blues. Back in 1927, I had a little farm and I called it heaven. Price was up and the rain come down and I hauled my crops all into town. I got the money, bought clothes and groceries, fed the kids, Took it easy The rain it quit And the wind got high And the black old dust storms filled the sky And I swapped my farm for a Ford machine And I filled it full of this gas Eileen And started Rolling and Drifting to California Way up yonder on a mountain road I had a hot motor and a heavy load. I was going pretty fast. I wasn't even stopping. I was bouncing up and down like popcorn. A popping had a breakdown. Sort of a nervous bust down of the uh, mechanism there. Some kind of engine trouble. His way up yonder on the mountain road I wasn't feeling so very good And I give this rolling Ford a shove And I was gonna coast as far as I could Commenced rolling Picking up speed And there was a hairpin turn And I couldn't make it Man alive, I'm telling you The fiddles and the guitars really flew that Ford took off like a flying squirrel and it flew halfway around the world. Scattered wives and children's all over the side of that mountain.
We got to old Los Angeles broke, so that gum hungry we thought we'd choke. And I bummed up a spud or two, and my wife cooked up a tater stew. Fed the kids a big bait of it. But that was mighty thin stew. So that gum thin, you could put near read a magazine through it. If it had been just a little bit thinner, I've always believed. That stew had been just a little bit thinner. Some of our senators could have seen through it. Does, did Woody have any kind of influences on its work? Now, I'm, from reading Bound for Glory, I could see a lot of Steinbeck's uh, feeling there. Anybody really? Oh, he loved to read. You know, this is something a lot of young people come to me and say, you know, we'd like to be like Woody. And I say, but you know, most of you only want to hobo around the way Woody did. But will you read as many books as he reads? And will you really study the way he did? He was a student, you know. And he did read a great deal. He did love Steinbeck. And he read many contemporary writers. He also read the Bible. And he also read other religions. I'm Jewish. And uh, my father, when we were married, gave us a gift of the Jewish Talmud, which was half in Hebrew and half in English. And you know, Woody read it, and he marked it all up. Uh, he was interested in the written word and how it influences people. And on his guitar during the war, he had a big sign that said, this machine kills fascists. Mm. Uh, yes, he, he did love Steinbeck mm. and many other people. You're mentioning about uh, the slogan on his guitar. Uh, I was hearing that when the Bonneville Power Administration announced plans to name a power substation after Woody, that there was protest because they said Woody was a communist. Now, I know in the 40s Woody wrote a column for the uh, Daily Worker in the People's World, but uh, you couldn't really call Woody a party-line communist, could you? No, you really couldn't. He did publish in the communist paper, but he also published in Common Ground and a lot of other publications where other people, like mm -hmm. Mrs. Roosevelt, published. The important thing is that Woody was an individual, mm -hmm. and he wants everybody else to be individuals. Don't follow anybody's party line. But he said it better than himself, though, once. He said, I don't know if I'm a communist or not, but I know I've always been in the red. <laughs> I noticed uh, during the war, he uh, did a lot of songs. For instance, uh, Round and Round Hitler's Grave was one of his, wasn't it? We had a whole collection. We have a whole collection of songs that Woody wrote just for the war effort. Mm -hmm. Songs about putting your lights out and pulling your shades down. Mm -hmm. And Round and Round Hitler's Grave is only one of many. Mm -hmm. And his songs were sung, and they were sung by the BBC over in England. We were, after all, allies. Mm -hmm. And he did his share in the war. Yes, he did. I understand Woody's hometown of Okima, Oklahoma. It uh, was having problems with honoring Woody. Uh, well, they did have problems. They did have problems? <laughs> they did have. We're very happy that people are growing up. Mm -hmm. And uh, they now, there were a few people who objected to honoring Woody, but I will say that if you go to Okima, Oklahoma, there are three water towers, and one of them says hot, and one says cold, and the other one says home of Woody Guthrie. <laughs> So I guess somebody there is willing to accept the fact that he did come from there. Okay, we have another guest with us today. His name is uh, Tom Taylor. And Mrs. Guthrie, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him? Well, the important thing is that Tommy represents a world of young people who've been singing Woody songs and developing programs of their own, and in a sense, keeping Woody alive. 
And I like to say to people like Tommy, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't have a film called Bound for Glory. I don't think Hollywood was that interested in Woody. But by young people singing his songs and keeping his songs alive, Hollywood suddenly woke up and said, hey, here's an interesting man. So Tom Taylor is here, and Tommy does a one-man show all about Woody, and it was my pleasure to have him come along with me and do this program with us. Thank you. Um, I would like to do uh, what is uh, typical of Guthrie's uh, <clears throat> way of thinking, I think. Um, he was raised in the Southwest, and... Uh, in that part of uh, the country in this particular uh, time. Uh, Woody was born in 1912, and um, he was raised in the Depression and the Dust Bowl. And in some of his writings, which uh, are included in my show, uh, he's talking about the situation down there and how, uh, how uh, politics became involved in it a little bit. And he made a comment this way. He said, now they uh, passed out all the handbills down in that uh, part of the situation, telling that there's uh, good work, good pay out in the land of California, eh? Plenty of cotton needed picking. 800 people wanted. Come on out, get them while they're hot. Well, they got out pretty near uh, 300,000 out there. As one successful advertising campaign. They had heard about the land of California where you sleep outdoors at night, you work all day in the big food orchards, you make enough to live on, get by on, you work hard, and you work honest, live decent. And according to the handbills they passed out in that part of the country, it's supposed to have a wonderful chance to succeed in California, so they <clears throat> headed out that way. They got out there, they found out it wasn't exactly like uh, they'd been told it was. There's lots of folks back east, they say, is leaving home most every day, trying to make the dust away to the California line. They cross the desert, sands they roll, trying to get out of the old dust bowl. I think they're heading for a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Are the police at the port of interest, say? Here number 14,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the dory, me friend. If you ain't got the dory, me. Better get on back to beautiful Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California's a garden of Eden. The paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hard if you ain't got the door in me. Now you wanna buy a house or farm, that can't do nobody harm. Or take your vacation by the mountains or the sea. Don't swap your old cow for a car, you better stay right where you are. You better take this little tip from me. Cause I read the papers every day. And the only thing the headlines ever say is, Hey, if you ain't got the door, hey, me, son. If you ain't got the door, hey, me. Better get yourself back on to Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee 
California's a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. I believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the door in me. How long have you been doing the uh, Woody Guthrie show? Um, I began doing it um, professionally in August of 74. Mm -hmm. And since last summer, have been uh, working with, uh, with Mr. Leventhal uh, and an agency in New York. When did you uh, first get attracted to Woody Guthrie? When I was a college student, Bob Dylan was making a big noise, you know, mm -hmm. and like everybody else, I was uh, interested uh, in him. And I think it was on uh, Dylan's first album, on the liner notes, he mentioned Guthrie, had a song, it's mm -hmm. called Song to Woody. And, uh, you know, it, there was a verse in that song that said, uh, here's to Sonny and, and Cisco and Lead Belly too and all the good people that traveled with you. Well, I didn't know who those people were and I, I didn't know who Woody Guthrie was either. So I began, you know, it grew to be a hobby and then grew to be what is now, you know, my full, mm. full time uh, <laughs> occupation. Could you do us another song? Yeah, well, uh, if I could, I'd like to do a, a short piece from the show. It's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, this is when he's talking about uh, his youth, and uh, he is reminiscing about, um, about a particular situation uh, that he found a little strange there in Okima, Oklahoma. And he says... Uh, <clears throat> At the common, everyday feeling down in that part of the country is that for some reason or other, there's, uh, there's some people born a little better than others. That uh, <clears throat> there's some uh, crazy way they... Got her looking at the uh, colored situation that uh, ever since I was a kid uh, growing up, I've always, I've always found time to stop and talk to these uh, colored folks because I'm telling you, I found them to be full of jokes. What I mean, eh, wisdom. Learned to play a French harp off a boy at Shine Shoes down there. I was going past the barbershop door one day. I was about 15, 16 years old. There was a boy, a big barefooted boy up laying in there, and he <clears throat> had his feet turned up towards me, and he was playing the harmonica. He was playing the uh, railroad blues. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha 
That was the uh, railroad blues that the colored boys playing when walk past the barbershop door is on a warm summer's day. He had his shoes kicked off. I'd had mine off just a couple of months then, you know, about tough enough then where I could run through the cockleburrs and wade up and down the broke bottles in the back alleys in town there after whiskey got to be pretty popular. And I says, uh, boy, that's undoubtedly the lonesomest piece of music I've run on to in my life. I said, where in the world did you learn it? Oh, he said, I just lay here and listen to the railroad whistle. Whatever it say, I say it too. So one time or other, then I'd go by this place. I had to run by the barber shop on the way to play hooky from school every day, and I'd see him. I'd say, I sure wish you'd play me that piece again. So about every day, he'd play me the same piece over and over and over. Had a whole bunch of them that he made up, just improvised, you know, and he never did uh, play the same piece no two days alike, and he called them all the Railroad Blues. I want to thank you for coming here today and sharing us a little bit of Woody. That was uh, Tom Taylor. Mrs. Guthrie, I'm sure there's been a, a lot of people these days have been, you know, doing Woody songs. Um, it started back in the 60s, I imagine, with the folk revival, but it seems to have been changing. Do you think it'll be coming back? Oh, it's always there. Woody always said folk music is always in because there's lots of folks. <laughs> and I agree. I don't think... We have our ups and downs, depending on who commercializes what. And I'm not really concerned. Hmm. I think that works of art, be they folk works of art, or the culture of a generation before or after, they're all part of the human race. They're all important. And I like to feel that everybody has something to contribute to it. In the uh, later years of Woody's life, he was uh, visited by many budding musicians, including Jack Elliott and Bob Dylan. How did Woody feel about being a sort of cult hero? He really wasn't, and he was not treated that way. You see, you say it now in retrospect, mm. but at that time it was just a lot of nice young friends came to the hospital to visit. And Woody was no more a hero to himself or to his own generation or to these young people at that time. They came as friends, and the important thing is they shared music. Mm. And everybody sat down on the floor wherever you were and you played music, and it was a wonderful way of spending the evening. And we did it, and it was part of our life. Uh, I liked. I would wish that more people would make music and dancing, because that's all part of my life, too, uh, an opportunity for families to do things together. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, instead of all being isolated watching the television, you all will be singing songs together and writing songs together and sharing, in a sense, the good feelings that come out of whatever you can create yourself. Right. Uh, during his life, Woody wasn't really recognized to the extent that he is, you say, after his death. What did uh, Woody take for a reward? Was there anything that really... Oh, he had great pride in himself. He didn't uh, need any rewards. Mm -hmm. He signed his name to everything he wrote, which means it's okay. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And I think that people who sign their names are proud of what they've done. And I think that that is what made it possible for him to spend 15 years in a mental hospital because he felt that he was somebody no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that's a great lesson for all of us to learn. We are all somebodies. And all of us have a responsibility to communicate that through our efforts and through our work and through our feelings about our fellow men. Gee, if people could do that, wouldn't we have a better world? Hmm? <laughs> uh, with the film Bound for Glory making the rounds, do you think it presented a true picture of your husband? I loved it. I must tell you, what I like is, I think it isn't just because it's Woody. 
I think all people who are sensitive do go through a period of your life where you don't know how much to look back and how much to look ahead and how do you make decisions and you kind of, you know that game, pin the tail on the donkey, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of turn yourself around and start walking, you don't know where it's going to take you. <laughs> well, in this picture, the reason I love it is because I think everybody has gone through that at some point in his life. And it, and it relates to everybody that you don't really know where you're going to go. The fact is that, well, he didn't know what he was doing in that sense, but he knew what he had to do and he did it. And nothing could stand in his way. And that's called commitment and hard work. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I love the picture. And I think that's what David did. He underplayed. Uh, you heard Tommy, um, in a sense, um, speaking the way Woody spoke. And he's absolutely right. Woody was not a verbal person. He was a writer, and all his thoughts came out with a pen. And if he were sitting here right now with us on this program, I don't think he'd say more than two words like, yep or nope. <laughs> and he poured it all into the writing. This is what's important in terms of his recognition of himself and my feelings about it. Although, you know, critics love the film, from what I've read. Um, it didn't do as well at the box office as most people expected. Do you see, see a reason Yes, for that? I see why. It's a very sad reason to me, but it doesn't bother me. I think that we're so used to mediocrity. We are so accustomed to uh, letting mo movies be the big escape or the big fantasy. We as adults do need fantasy, and we do need escape. But it shouldn't be the only kind of so-called uh, serious cultural relationships that we have to art and music. We do listen to Beethoven. And, you know, Woody even listened to Beethoven. People forget that. He didn't just play folk music. I think it's important that uh, people understand that this picture is more than just entertainment. And if you're going to go there just to be entertained, well, yes, it's true, you won't like it. But I think I'm delighted with the picture because I can live with it. If the people who made it had made it into what I call a rah-rah Hollywood film, and then I wrote, and then I wrote, and then you see a lot of girls tap dancing to this land is your land, I think I would have collapsed. Mm. I can live with this film because it is beautiful, and it's meaningful to many, many people, I think. Yeah, the film uh, won two Academy Awards, uh, Leonard Roseman for his uh, sound score and adaptation, and Haskell Wexler for his cinematography, but uh, I noticed at the ceremony nobody mentioned Woody. Well, fortunately, they didn't have to mention him. For those of us who knew he was there, he was there. Mm -hmm. I knew he was there. And I enjoyed knowing that there were a lot of people around this world who love Woody. Mm -hmm. But more important, not love him. They love him for what he stood for. And if I may repeat that lovely story about the rabbits. You know the story about the rabbits? No, I don't think I do. No? Well, you know, when Woody would sing at Union Halls, before he'd open up and sing his Union Maid song or something about the unions, he told this story. Uh, you know, I really ought to let Tommy tell the story because he can tell it very well, much better than I like Woody. Will you tell the rabbit Tommy? story, Tommy? Can you tell it? Uh, I reckon I wasn't no more than uh, seven years old, first time I heard about a union. And what I heard was a story of uh, two rabbits. It was a he-rabbit and a she-rabbit. <clears throat> And they uh, got chased up in a hollow log by a pack of mean old starving hungry hounds. And finally, them uh, dogs was barking, yelling, screaming outside. And the rabbit's in the hollow log. And the he-rabbit looks at the she-rabbit and said, Well, what do we do now? 
And the she-rabbit just uh, looks at him, gives him a grin and a wink, says, uh, we just uh, stay here till we outnumber them. And that's what I intend to do. Go around this country and meet people like you, and a lot of good people, and say, hang around, let's outnumber them. We're going to get what we want someday. <laughs> you were mentioning uh, unions. Do you think the idea of unions have changed since when Woody was fighting for them? Oh, yes. Unions have, in many ways, become not what we had dreamed mm. about. I think that has to be changed. I think mm. it has to be reversed. I don't want to see a union become a bureaucracy or become a part of the system that we fought against. Mm. It's going to take a lot of doing. If Woody was around today, what do you think he'd be writing songs about? Everything. You know, he read the paper every single morning and wrote the headlines into a little notebook of the songs he was going to write about. And I think whatever he saw today, that's what he'd write about. Hmm. Here's Woody's son, Arlo, carrying on his father's ideas. You know, it took me a long time to get around to writing a Watergate song. I think because, mainly because in the beginning of Watergate, it was pretty funny, you know. So I said, oh, I'm going to write one of them funny Watergate, you know, Watergate, Watergate, but sort of got past the point of being funny, you know, and it went on to new, bigger and better things. And then I thought, oh, I better write one of those satirical ballads, you know, like, but got past that point. So I never wrote a Watergate song until one day, a little while ago, I was sitting around, I forgot all about Watergate, and I was sitting around playing the piano, and all of a sudden this song jumped out and wrote itself down. The next day, Spiro resigned. So, I've been writing a lot since. <laughs> You didn't know that the cats with the bugs were there And you'd never go along with that kind of stuff nowhere But that just isn't the point, man That's the wrong, wrong way to go If you didn't know about that one Well, then what else don't you know? You said that you were lied to Well, that ain't hard to see But you must have been fooled again By your friends across the sea And maybe you were fooled again By your people here at home Cause nobody could talk like you And know what's going on Nobody elected your family And we didn't elect your friends No one voted for your advisors And nobody wants amends You're the one we voted for So you must take the blame For handing out authority To men who are insane 
say it's all fixed up now You've got new guys on the line But you had better remember this While you still got the time Mothers still are weeping For their boys that went to war And fathers are still asking What the whole damn thing was for People still are hungry And people still are poor And honest week of work these days Don't feed the kids no more And schools are still like prisons Cause we don't learn how to live And everybody wants to take Nobody wants to give Yes, you'll be remembered, be remembered very well. And if I live a long life, oh, the stories I could tell of men in wars and poverty, of sickness and of greed. Hell yes, you'll be remembered, be remembered very well. You said you didn't know that the cats with the bugs were there And you'd never go along with that kind of stuff nowhere But that just isn't the point, man That's the wrong, wrong way to go If you didn't know about that one Well, in what else don't you? Now your son Arlo, uh, he's been doing some political type songs such as Presidential Rack. Uh, do you think he's, is, when he writes, he's influenced a lot by his father or is he influenced by other things? Oh, I think both, don't you? Mm. I think that uh, if you've grown up with a certain uh, background, it, it influences your life, but then you hope that you're going to look out and reach out and, and see more and do more. Mm. As a mother, how did you feel when Arlo started being a hit with Alice's Restaurant. Do you really want to know the truth? Yeah. I was so nervous. <laughs> I was so miserable that I didn't want to go to the concerts. I felt that I worried more about him than I ever did about Woody. But part of it had to do with the fact that Woody never sang in Carnegie Hall. He sang in a union hall where everybody was blowing their noses and talking <laughs> while he was singing. And then to go into a formal concert place and see my son up there singing in Carnegie Hall, it scared me. Hmm. And I was scared for him. But then you know something very nice happened. He was singing once, even before Carnegie, I remember, in a little coffee house somewhere, and there was a drunk. And he started making a lot of noise. And he said something, Arlo was talking, you know how Arlo likes to talk on his programs. Right. And he said, why don't you make music? You know, no, not talk, why don't you make music? And I'm dying, I hear this man. And this little Arlo turned around and he said, everything is music. And I thought to myself, okay, my son's okay. He'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed in the late 60s, Arlo seemed to uh, typify the hippie movement, if you want to call it that. But uh, today he seems to, I don't know, sort of mellowed out, I'd say. Do you think, uh, what, what, what directions do you think he's taking with his career? I could not possibly predict, <laughs> and I would hope that I shouldn't. I think that people should react to their world mm -hmm. at the time you see it. 
Yeah. And we shouldn't dream about what you're going to do five years from now. What are you going to do today? What's happening and are you a part of what's happening? And I think Arlo is a part of what's happening. The fact that he's growing up and has a family has perhaps softened or mellowed him. I would assume it would. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you lose your integrity or your spunk or your energy or your sense of humor or your vitality. Hmm. And what he's going to do is going to be just as much fun for me to see as perhaps for you. I was reading in a recent article in the Rolling Stone that it seemed to describe Arlo as uh, converting to Catholicism. Now, is that true? Now, let me tell you what yeah. he answered me on that question. Because, as I told you, I come from a Jewish background. And one of the things we had always told our children was that we believed that religion really was the word good. It was God, but we just put an extra O taken out. So I said, Arlo, did you mean that you are becoming a Catholic? And he said, Mom, I'm using the word Catholic meaning universal. This is what he told me. And we talked for a while. We had a very interesting discussion. At the end of the discussion, I will tell you as a mother what I said. I said, Arlo, this was a marvelous, fascinating discussion, and I'll tell you the truth. I love discussing religion with you on these terms so much better than when we talked about astrology and mysticism. So you've come mm -hmm. a long way, and I hope you'll go another long way. Woody was into astrology at one point of his life, wasn't he? Well, not exactly astrology, but mysticism because of some background that he had had in his family, too. Mm -hmm. And I think we do look for easy answers, don't we? Everybody does. I did, too, when I was a kid. But then you grow up, and you begin to look for practical answers. And that means education, concern, relationships. You learn from your wife. You learn from your kids. You exchange. I'm growing up still, I hope. Hmm. And I learn a lot from Arlo and my other children as well. You know, somebody complained one day. I wanted to just comment because Arlo said something jokingly about Huntington's disease on um, a major network. And I want to point out to people, one of the nice things about the Guthries is that we do face reality. And today, if Arlo is well, I want him to enjoy today. And if tomorrow he becomes sick, I want him to learn how to live with that sickness. I want all people to live with hope. And we mustn't go around and say, yes, Huntington's is so fatal. Huntington's is this, Huntington's is that. We know how fatal it is. We know what it is. But how do you live with it, not how do you die with it? Hmm. Well, Mrs. Guthrie, I'm afraid we've run a little short of time today. Uh, my guest has been Mrs. Marjorie Guthrie, the wife of the late Woody Guthrie, and also Tom Taylor, who is doing a one-man show with Woody Guthrie. Uh, before we end, Mrs. Guthrie, I wonder if you could give us your address for the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease. All people who are interested in what I have to say, mm -hmm. who would like to read our information, if you'll get a pencil and write to, you can write to Marjorie Guthrie or you can write to CCHD, which stands for Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, at 250 West 57th Street, 250 West 57th Street in New York City, and the zip is 1019. And if they can't remember it or didn't write it down, they might call you, right. perhaps, and get the information here sure, from the station. Just... We need volunteers. We need <laughs> ideas. We need helpers. We need people to join with us. Well, thank you both again. Ms. Sure. Guthrie, I wish you luck with your committee. Thank you. And in closing, the only thing I can really think of is something Woody Guthrie once said, take it easy, but take it. Good words. I'm Ron Alesco. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. 
so long It's been good to know you This dusty old dust is a-blowing me home I've got to be rolling along This program has been a pre-recorded presentation of WFDU-FM.